I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome to Behind the Bastards, the show where the Lakers and the Clippers are the same thing, the exact same thing. Sophie, Sophie, we're, we're already going. We're, do- we're, we're running. We're running, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I record. Oh, mm-hmm. are yep. they still keep that all in? Still... All of this in. Uh-huh. I saw that. Are they still owned by Steve Ballmer? They yeah, are still. Right? The Clippers are still owned by Steve Ballmer. They are. You know, they are go. down zero. Uh, they are, they're down two games, zero two in the first round. Even though they were picked to win and they lost at home it's, both games. It, it's terrible. funny you bring up Steve Ballmer. Oh yeah, this is such a great. We're talking about Steve Ballmer. That's why I brought it up. Yeah, and Microsoft. uh, This is behind the bastards. The show that started 47 seconds ago. uh, Because I didn't inform anyone when it started because I wanted to say that the Lakers and the Clippers are the same thing. They are not. (laughs) Because I wanted to make Sophie angry. Um, It did make me angry because it's very it's very insulting to compare. That's that's how we did it. That's how we did it. Clippers Um, the same amount as me. That's how we did it. We're doing it. It's done. Welcome Anderson, to the Anderson the has show. the same amount of rings as the Clippers. But she doesn't we're have to, thumbs. We're doing um, a podcast. I think that they are indistinguishable. But you know who's not indistinguishable? All of our other guests and our current guest, wow. Andrew T. Because Andrew Ooh. T. is distinguished. A distinguished yeah. man. A distinguished Jesus. podcast guest. How are you doing, Andrew? I'll Welcome say I'm, I'm more show. of a distinguished podcast guest than a distinguished man. That is mm-hmm. for fucking short. Thanks for having me. Well, you are you are one of my very favorite guests. We always have me such a good too. time when we talk about terrible <laughs> things. But because you're like talented in bullshit, you're always like working on, on TV shows. 
So <laughs> Sophie and I had to had to sabotage your career uh, in order to get you back on the podcast. So welcome oh, back. I appreciate to the podcast. it. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. Uh, for thank that. you. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the car bombs, but I don't know any other oh. way to make a podcast. It is. It is. Uh, it's effective. It's mm-hmm. it's a way to be heard. That's what people yeah. say about car bombs. Effective. <laughs> yeah. Well, Andrew, today our show is uh, titled, our working title is Bill Gates, the child molesting is pedophile in the history of slander. <laughs> now, <laughs> Andrew, today you and I are going to have a debate primarily about whether or not Bill Gates sexually trafficked children. Now, my stance on the matter is yes, absolutely. And I know your stance is, and I want to make sure I'm getting this right, because uh, you, you talked about this before we started the show. Yes, absolutely. And if you want to dispute this, please sue me, Bill Gates, you pasty scum-sucking coward. Is that, that's how you framed it, right? I feel like I wouldn't say uh, <laughs> scum-sucking, I guess. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel like me. But everything You are else a better writer sounds, than me, so yeah, you probably would have. pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I was hoping when I, when I came mm-hmm. on this show that there'd be less blood on uh, various hands than a typical mm-hmm. episode that I've guessed it on. No. And <laughs> I, guess, I guess not. <laughs> I mean, in a way, we're still talking about imperialism. Now, normally, the imperialism you and I sure. talk about is, you know, our old buddy King Leopold. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, who's uh, one, one uh, of the greats, and the and the Brazilian dude, who uh, John of God was that his oh, name? Oh yeah, John, John of, God. of God. Holy God, that was harrowing. Yeah, yeah that, that was, was horrible. <laughs> we don't we don't have to do a, a greatest hits uh, episode right now, but yeah, damn, that that shit damn. was. I just I was actually just remembering it. I was like, I yeah, just okay, feel well. so bad uh, with that list of episodes that we've <laughs> mm-hmm. asked you to. You were also on. on the episode about the Andaman Islands, which was just wall to wall ethnic cleansing. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. So the, I truly, I was like, I I will say. Uh, in all honesty, before I, I got here, I was like, I, is there a chance that I was about to potentially make the argument that, um, like, given, like, the class of person Bill Gates is, I don't mm-hmm. is he even the worst of the, like, tech billionaires? Uh, but I, I, I suppose I'm about to be disabused of this yeah, line of that's reasoning. Yeah, that's a debatable point. Um, <laughs> you know, th- th- we had to leave a lot out of this motherfucker of an episode, <laughs> which is like one of the things that's kind of, when you actually try to list all of the damaging things Bill Gates mm-hmm. has done, it's um it's an additional like course of study and how toxic billionaires are, because you realize like, my yeah. God, they're able to do so much. It's because yeah. all they all they needed to do was like have a whim and sh- shotgun money out to a team of people to yeah. make that whim real, and then they've impacted the lives of millions of folks. And it took them yeah. like eleven minutes. Yeah, or just a yeah a thought or a whim or mm-hmm. or a tweet or whatever. Yeah, yeah they, I guess that that is yeah. that was my my only thought. I was like, this one this one is the like graded on a curve. I'm curious to actually hear where Bill Gates lands. Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, Andrew. So without further ado, yeah. let's start the episode. Part one, Bill Gates is absolutely a sex offender, comma, and that is legally actionable slander. Um, <laughs> which which is the Sophie, can we go with that as the title? No, we can't. Can we publish that? Unfortunately, um, un- unfortunately, unfortunately, I feel like <laughs> our overlords would be very unhappy with us. <laughs> All right. Well, and I like having a place to live. <laughs> well, 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 let's let's put a pin in that. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Well, let's put a pin in you having a place to live because who knows oh, how this episode's going to go. <laughs> cool. So 
William Henry Gates III was born on October 28th in Seattle, Washington, a town too rad for him to deserve. His Mm. father was William H. Gates Sr., who used to be alive, but now is not that. William Gates (laughs) Sr. was a prominent corporate lawyer and a World War II veteran. His mother, Mary Maxwell Gates, was a girl boss and served on the board of directors for the first interstate bank system and the United Way. His mom's dad had been the president of a national bank. So, you know, money, right? Like yeah. your dad, your, 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 your maternal grandpa is a bank president. Your dad's a wealthy <laughs> corporate lawyer. Like you've got, you, you're not just like rich, you've got like family money. Right. So religion was present, but doesn't seem to have been a huge factor in Bill Gates's childhood or in the Gates family childhood. He had he had two siblings. The family attended a Protestant reform church. Bill's parents hoped he would follow in his father's footsteps and pursue a law degree. But from what I've read, they didn't put a lot of pressure on him to follow a specific path. Uh, His family was close. They played a lot of board games together. Sunday dinner was at the same time every week and they wore matching family pajamas. So like, you know, oh, my God, like a very, very. Like this family sends out cards every year on time. Like it's one of those yeah. kind of families. You yeah. Know, they're exhausting. That bothers oh my me God. so much. Mm-hmm. So he was like a real ass Poindexter growing up. Absolutely. Did you hear his name? He has a William <laughs> Henry Gates the third matching pajama. Yeah. Like he has a, and he didn't go by the very cool nickname Bill Hen, which is what I would have gone by. <laughs> so Bill Gates Sr. admitted in interviews in the 21st century uh, that when Bill Gates, you know, the one we know, was growing up, uh, he was somewhat emotionally distant as a father. Um, and a, a number of folks have said this. And it's kind of usually written as like, well, this is just sort of like a sign of the times, right? Like he was a man. He was a child of the of the 1920s, you know. Right. That's kind of how those people are going to are going to be. Uh, he worked hard and he left most of the child rearing up to his wife. He was serious and he talked to his kids like they were adults. His oldest daughter later recalled he'd come home and he'd sit in his chair and eat dinner. But there was never any kind of warm. Give me a hug kind of thing. Now, Bill's mom had been an athlete and an honor student, and she had extremely high standards for her kids. This was less of a push your kids to follow a specific path thing and more of a you have to work hard and do your best at whatever you choose to do kind of thing, though. She encouraged her children to try music and sports, even if they were bad at those things, because failure was a good experience to have. And Bill was terrible at music, which same. <laughs> now, the Gates children were expected to dress nicely and be on time because both parents were members of high society. They had to learn to socialize with prominent adults at an early age. Bill followed his mother's guidance. He was a voracious reader from an early age, and he read the World Book Encyclopedia series from beginning to end. So, yeah, exhausting kid. God. (laughs) What are you reading, Bill? Volume F of the encyclopedia. The entire encyclopedia. (laughs) Oh, my God. I I guess I I have to say, if you catch your small child reading the encyclopedia from beginning to end, you got to like you got to put some poison in his food or something. You got to slow yeah. that brain down. You got to slow that give brain down. Something. He's not going anywhere good. Yeah. Give him get him on drugs. You know, just give him some give him liquor. Get him to start. Have him start drinking. <laughs> that does explain Encarta. Yeah, uh, it doesn't explain to... Encarta. <laughs> it's 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 a shame that after the encyclopedia giving him so much joy as a child, he went on to commit such a crime against encyclopedia <laughs> kind as in Carter. <laughs> um, so his parents liked that he was a, a big reader and they would reward his th- hunger for knowledge by offering to buy him any book he wanted. Uh, it should not be a surprise that he grew up super nerdy and was bullied from an early age for being small and weird and obsessed with books, um, which, you know, 
say. I was I was the kid who always had like a book underneath the uh, uh, the table in like math class. I got in a lot of trouble for that shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I I was definitely a little bit of that, but yeah. it's also just like that's not just why he was born. He just is such an unpleasant dweeb. Yeah, I think he was probably a real real dick. Um, just judging yeah. by everything that comes later, yeah. I guess it wasn't just the books. Um, <laughs> yeah. So obviously, getting bullied caused him to withdraw further into his own little world. Uh, and this started to worry his parents. His dad attempted to counter this by making young Bill work as a greeter at their parties and as a waiter at professional functions for his Jesus law firm. Jesus <laughs> Again, exhausting family. <laughs> I mean, a, a family that has parties that requires a greeter is... Yeah, yeah. That's wild shit. Holy yeah. fuck. Again, this whole family... Could have just yeah. just get him get him to start drinking, you know. Yeah, they they could have all garbage. used a problem, you know. <laughs> right. That's this that's the thing. His family clearly does not have enough problems. They're rich. Yeah. they're high society. Uh, they need more problems, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Holy fuck. Okay. Exactly. That's, yeah. You know, this is good as I feel like this childhood is going to possibly start going <laughs> to feel exonerating. It's given amazing. How fucked up it was. <laughs> I mean, actually, like we'll we'll get to that in a bit, but it is amazing that like it it really gives you an insight because his dad comes across as very reasonable in interviews, like just an extremely reasonable man. But then mm-hmm. you realize, like, okay, your kid was getting beat up in school, so your solution was to make him be a waiter to rich people because <laughs> like, you thought that would help. <laughs> oh, okay, so you 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 didn't really have yeah. everything together either when you were like it's that's yeah. a that's a weird move. <laughs> what a horrible solution! Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, most interviews will say that by age 11, when it came to, like, intellect, Bill was more or less an adult. We're not talking about maturity here, but his ability to discuss international affairs and business and, like, generally, he was he was a very smart kid. He was, he was you know, by the time he was 11 or 12, not really acting like a kid anymore. Uh, his right. dad later recalled, quote, it was interesting and I thought it was great. Now, I will say to you, his mother did not appreciate it. It bothered her. Uh, and she was bothered because Bill's intellect made him arrogant and led to clashes with his parents. And I'm going to quote from the Wall Street Journal here. The son pushed against his mother's instinct to control him, sparking a battle of wills. All those things that she had expected of him, a clean room, being at the dinner table on time, not biting his pencils, suddenly turned into a source of fi- a big source of friction. The two fell into explosive arguments. He was nasty, his sister says of her brother. Mr. Gates Sr. played the role of peacemaker. He'd sort of break them apart and calm things down, says the eldest sibling. The battles reached a climax at dinner one night when Bill Gates was around 12. Over the table, he shouted at his mother in what today he describes as utter, total sarcastic, smart-ass kid rudeness. His father responded by throwing a cold glass of water at his son's face, to which his son responded <laughs> sarcastically, thanks for the shower. Oh, God. This doesn't sound fun at all. What a tool. What an yeah. unbelievable tool. Bigger Real young Sheldon vibes up in yeah. here. I know, I yeah. know. Fucking, fuck you, child Bill Gates. <laughs> I mean, yeah. again, this is why more children need to drink. Um, yeah. Yeah, slow them down. We got to slow down generation. What is it after Z? Z1? I mean, eventually it's going to be simply generation final. Yeah, generation uh, final. <laughs> Thank God. Oh my God. Uh, after Z, is there an after Z? I don't think I don't think it's happened yet. Yeah, but 
like what the Bill Gates story informs us of is that somewhere out there is a kid who could become the future Bill Gates if somebody doesn't put a steel reserve yeah. in his hand fast yeah. enough. Yeah. Like, or Just some a- Boone's Farm. Kids love Boone's Farm. Give them some Boone's <laughs> Farm. <laughs> When I get rich, I'm going to start a charity that just distributes Boone's Farm to precocious children. I mean, you just bring Sparks back. Mm-hmm. That's Sp- I feel yeah, like Sparks is good for kids. Yeah, that's how it basically got. Yeah. you know, hey kids, it's an energy drink, but it'll make you dumber. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, the throwing water in his son's face story is a, a story you'll find a lot written in articles about Bill, particularly in the early 2000s. Now, this is the period we're talking about, like how what led to this today. But the early 2000s was when Bill started kind of stepping away from Microsoft and into philanthropy. And so there were suddenly a rush of articles like because he had been I don't people don't really know this. We're going to be talking about why I think people who weren't, you know, super cogent during the 90s. He was like the demon, the devil to a lot of people in the 90s. And then throughout the aughts, he got really rehabilitated. His image did because he went from like the evil overlord of the mega corporation that was, you know, right. fucking everything up to like the guy curing malaria, basically. I um, guess it, it is true because because it is a little hard to remember how mm-hmm. pervasive Microsoft. Yeah. Like, right. You literally. Yeah. Unless you are a very unpleasant Bill Gates type, couldn't yeah. have a computer without yeah. Windows on it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a different era um, of yeah. technology, and so this, uh, uh, for whatever reason, when th- this like rush of articles came out, kind of burnishing Bill's reputation in the early two thousands, this story wound up on them a lot, and they tended to portray this moment, his dad throwing water in his face, as like a turning point for young Bill Gates, where he realized like, oh, I'm being an asshole, and where his parent like when everything kind of like turned around for him and his family. Um, but I've, I've run across other articles that were written in a similar time period and were less of like shameless plugs. Um, yeah. And these articles make it clear that his behavioral problems went deeper than that. And there was not as clean a break, uh, when they stopped as, as Gates and his family like to portray. I found a Washington post article that noted Bill spent so much time in his room during his adolescence that his mom would buzz him on the house intercom to ask what he would do it was doing. (laughs) And he would shout back. I'm thinking, have you ever tried thinking? So (laughs) again, (laughs) he's he's a real he's a real asshole about being smart oh my god Um, yeah like my mom would have slapped the shit out of me if I'd said like not that that's good but like I would have gotten the shit slapped out of me for saying that sort of thing yeah um now, the fight made it clear to his father and mother that things were getting out of control. Uh, so they took him to a therapist. Bill later recalls telling them, I'm telling the, the therapist, I'm at war with my parents over who is in control. The therapist told his mom and dad that their son was going to eventually win his struggle for independence. So their best bet was to let him have his freedom now and see how he handled it. So that's what they did. They took him out of his old school and they enrolled him in a private school, Lakeside Prep. Uh, and the idea was that this school would give him more freedom and that that would resolve his behavioral problems. I don't know the extent to which it resolved his behavioral issues, because I think he kept being a dick. Um, right. But he, he absolutely he loved the school. And it was uh, it's it, it's what made him going to this specific school is what made him into the man that he became. Um, and I, it's here I should probably note that of all of the people I've studied in this series, Bill Gates is absolutely the luckiest. I, I think he might have the most <laughs> privileged upbringing I have ever encountered. And that includes like fucking kings. 
Like, right, right. In terms of like the time he was born, the time he was raised, the resources his family had, like they, right. they not only, but it's also like not only did they have money, not only did he grow up in a time when like opportunity was exploding in this country, um, not only were his parents upper class, but they were thoughtful and understanding in excess right. of the norm for his era. They were willing to right. give him freedoms him, that yeah. exactly that was very few people. So like just comprehensively the luckiest man I've ever heard about. <laughs> um, he also lucked into a good therapist, which people who have tried to find therapists can say is like not a common thing, especially finding a therapist whose answer to behavioral problems is going to be. You just got to let your kid do his shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all good. The it's yeah. all good approach. Yeah, the it's all good approach. And then he lucked into Lakeside Prep, uh, which, you know, not only was like a, a lot of rich kids go to fancy schools. Lakeside Prep was not just a fancy school. It was a school with a computer. Now, Bill started right. there when he was 13 in 1968, an era for which 99% of people, the term computer meant either some shit NASA uses or like sci-fi nonsense. Probably right. less than 1% of 1% of 13-year-old boys had meaningful access to computers in this time period, and Bill Gates was one of them. That's right. what it like, ab just staggeringly fortunate <laughs> right like at that time the the other it feels like the other possible meaning or access to computers literally a human being who computes numbers yeah yeah like a guy with an abacus <laughs> yeah yeah um so the reason that bill's school had a computer is that when he was in eighth grade the mother's club at lakeside held a rummage sale and they used the profits from it to buy a teletype model 33 asr terminal uh, and they also rented a block of time on a general electric computer. So Bill gets access to this machine because the mom's club at his school is forward thinking enough to be like, we should probably get a computer so these kids can you know, like that seems like it might be the future. Um, and Bill is immediately obsessed with the machine. He starts programming. He starts creating new like languages and, and shit. Um, and he was so good at it, actually. And this is another ridiculous stroke of luck. He was so good at programming that his school said he no longer had to go to math class so he could spend more time <laughs> learning computers. It's just like, my God. Wow. <laughs> like just categorically the luckiest boy who ever lived. Yeah. Yeah. But also, it's like, at the time, was that even like a thing that made sense? Like, I mean, no, computers I mean, I were get, fucking. I mean, I, again, I yeah. think if you were a smart person and, and you were someone who could like forward thinking, because like a lot of sci fi yeah. writers talk about this, a lot of people knew yeah, computers yeah. were going to be the future. Right. Um, it would still be good to have done a little bit of high school math, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume he was ahead of it. Like, they were also yeah, were like, yeah, oh, this kid's fine. good enough at math. He's not going to, he yeah, doesn't yeah, need yeah. to. It's fine. Yeah. Now, when I say there are no self-made billionaires, shit like this is why. Because there's no way that Bill Gates becomes the multi-billionaire he is today if he doesn't have both. This And this is like not talking, yeah. like leaving out exploitation and stuff. Sure. There's no way he becomes a billionaire if he doesn't have the privilege and wild fortune to have access to this computer. And like a lot of most rich kids didn't have this opportunity. Bill right. benefited at an early age, not just from wealth and social privilege, but from a wonderfully supportive community of moms who had the farsight to buy a computer for their kids to use and a school that was progressive enough to let him like spend his class time learning to program. And yeah. Bill blossomed with all this additional freedom. His dad later recalled that Bill realized, quote, hey, I don't have to prove my position relative to my parents. I just have to figure out what I'm doing relative to the world. And Bill decided the thing he really wanted to do was get good at computers. His first computer program was a tic-tac-toe game he programmed that let users play against the computer. 
he was not the only kid obsessed with the computer. Two other boys, Paul Allen and Kent Evans, fell in love with this machine. Um, Paul Allen is the Microsoft yeah. co-founder. Um, he died not That's too long a, ago, I think. Yeah. Oh, man. It is crazy just like you and your buddy from high yeah. school becoming billionaires together. Yeah, because some moms sell yeah. a bunch of junk and buy a computer. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's like one of those tic-tac-toe things. Like a yeah. bunch of moms in the 1960s hold a rummage sale. And then the big domino is millions die of the coronavirus because vaccine <laughs> access is locked down. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, uh, I went to kind of a hippie high school. So yeah. the only equivalent to that would be if we had like been able to be the only humans mm-hmm. on Earth with access to weed. Yeah. At like <laughs> age 14. <laughs> and I guess that would have changed shit. If your school was like, he doesn't have to go to math class. He's, He's so getting real good at, good at smoking, smoking pot. weed. <laughs> Truly. Uh, man, if only they'd given Bill Gates weed instead of a computer. <laughs> he just would have been really into Grand Funk Railroad and we could have solved, avoided a lot yeah. of problems. <laughs> a lot of problems. Uh, but you know what is into Grand Funk Railroad, Andrew? Mm. The products and services that support this podcast, one of which is Grand Funk Railroad, our primary podcast sponsor. (laughs) They're still alive, right? Or are they dead? I'm going to Google, is Grand Funk Railroad dead? (laughs) Um, No, they're still alive. Looks like it. 1996 to present. uh, They were disbanded. Oh, yeah. Seems like like they're still going. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, uh, listen to... Grand Funk Railroad. Here's ads. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com behind. That's mintmobile.com behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. We just we just listened to some GFR. I call them GFR, Andrew. Um, it's just kind of a thing within the the GFR community. So I don't know why we're talking about Grand Funk Railroad today. So yeah, Bill Gates gets real into computers with Paul Allen and this other kid, Kent Evans. Now, Kent Evans was Gates's early best friend. He was a weird kid who carried a briefcase filled with business magazines. So what? <laughs> Shit! <laughs> I hate this high school full of dorks so much. I know. I know. I was bullied as a kid, but it's making me want to go back in time to deliver swirlies. Like, yeah. We need like we need time. Oh. We need time traveling. There's a TV pitch. Time traveling bullies going back to like beat up kids who turn into monsters. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take care of this shit. Let's, we got to deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> Get some kid who was an incredible bully back in the 80s and he retires to like go fly fishing in Montana. The government finds him on his farm like well, you're needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this man can deliver 13 swirlies in the space of seven minutes. No one's ever equaled that. Well, I, I guess the show version would be, you know, they need a child to do it. So they they assume the bully's mm-hmm. kid, but the bully's kid is actually very gentle. He's a nerd. So sort of a father and son bullying people through time. Yes, he's, he's got to teach his kid to beat up other kids. <laughs> yeah. For, for the sake of humanity. Oh, God. Okay. Well, it's Netflix, not bad. I know yeah. you're listening. Green light this shit. We can have a script out to you by what? Thursday? Yeah. That yeah, feels right. At this rate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, (laughs) Bill Gates is hanging out with the briefcase boy Um, and Kent pushes Gates will credits that Kent is the guy who pushed him to think big and take risks and was like, like they were always talking about what they're going to be, some kind of businessman, some kind of politician. So like he was he was an ambitious kid. Um, 
And together, Gates and Allen and another kid named Rick Wayland, who was another Microsoft founder, started the Lakeside Programmers Club. Now, despite the term club, this was not a hobby for them. The goal from the beginning was to find ways to make money with computers. I'm going to quote from the Washington Post here. The club operated with minimal supervision. This was by design, says Fred Wright, the Lakeside math chairman who provided that supervision. Our philosophy was get a group of smart people together, give them tools and get out of the way. Wright says again, incredibly lucky that he says is the best environment to spur creativity, competition and collaboration. If you want to see the roots of Microsoft's culture, look no further than the Lakeside Programmer Club, Kent's father says. The four boys spent late night hours at Seattle's Computer Center Corp, C-Cubed, which offered time on a digital equipment corp machine per an agreement with Lakeside. Uh, When C-Cubed went out of business in 1970, the Lakeside Programmers Club nearly imploded in a civil war. Gates and Evans agreed to buy a set of DEC tapes cheap in a bankruptcy auction without the knowledge of their partners. They hid the tapes in a room at Lakeside, and when Allen learned of this, he found and kept them. Livid, Gates and Evans threatened legal action. They were 15. (laughs) So these kids are having like... Like corporate legal spats as like 15 year olds over the secret computing machines they bought and hid from each other to keep a leg up on their teenage friends. (laughs) Oh, my God. Maybe there should have been a little more superstition. Yeah. Like it's one of those things. I believe Murphy show. You should let kids be kids. You should let kids explore. But also someone should have sat them and said, guys. You, you, you are not you are assholes. not a warring seri- you are not warring mega corporations. You are children. Yeah, do, Share the fucking do one tapes. normal thing. <laughs> like, do a normal yeah. thing and stop carrying the briefcase around, Kent, for the love of God. Everyone uh, hates the briefcase. <laughs> we hate the briefcase, we hate you. Yeah. Uh, you're gonna feel bad about that in a second. So as their adolescence rolled on, <laughs> Bill and Kent started taking consulting jobs for local companies that had computers, but no one who knew how to use them very well. They would often work in exchange for free computing time. In their junior year, a lakeside teacher hired them to automate the school's class scheduling system. They did several all-nighters to get the program ready. Then, on Memorial Day of that year, Kent took a break to go mountain climbing. Now, he was not an athletic kid, but he had become, he was, you know, he was someone who was prone to, like, getting obsessed with things. And he had decided, he, rather suddenly, that he wanted to get, like, good at physical tasks. So he got into mountain climbing. Um... But he wasn't great at it, and he slipped and fell to his death on May 28th, 1972. So his father later blamed the accident on the fact that Kent was too exhausted to pay attention on mountain climbing because he'd been coding with Bill Gates all night. Um, And Gates (laughs) told the Washington Post, I was devastated. Um, And he's been very consistent about the fact that like this was an incredibly traumatic thing. His best friend dies. Uh, He was actually set to give a speech at Kent's funeral, but he couldn't handle doing it. Uh, It was just too emotional for him. I'm sure this is true. His now soon-to-be ex-wife says that when she met him like 30 years later, he still talked about Kent all the time. But I have to throw in this very odd quote he gave to Netflix for a documentary when asked about Kent's death. It was so unexpected, so unusual. People didn't know what to say to me or to his parents. I sort of thought, hey, okay, now I'm going to do all these things that we talked about, but I'll do it without him. Like, that's... I mean, he's just a weird dude who has trouble phrasing yeah. things like a yeah, human I think it is like because he's really but. consistent about this being devil. And I'm sure it was um, that yeah. said, clearly it was a weird kind of friendship because they're engaging in like corporate espionage with their yeah. t- other teenage buddies. Like now with his best friend dead, Bill needed a new best friend to stay up all night coding with one who wouldn't go mountain climbing. He picked Paul Allen. 
Paul was enrolled at the University of Washington, but he would come back to finish the project with Gates when he was on break from college. Gates and Allen finished coding the program during Gates' senior year. While he was still 17, he and Allen formed a company called Trafo Data with the, with the goal of making traffic counting machines. Um, so they they're like they're, they're doing businessy shit throughout this period, Bill's last couple of years in high school. But their collaborations weren't all professional. During one of his breaks from college, Allen helped Bill Gates do something creepy as hell. And I'm going <laughs> to quote from a write up in the cut. When he was in high school, he and fellow Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen would hack into the school's scheduling software and sign Gates up for all girls classes to up his chances of getting a date. Paul did the computer Whoa. scheduling with me, Gates said. Unfortunately for him, he was two years ahead of me and he was off to college by then. So I was the one who benefited by being able to have the nice girls at least sit near me. It wasn't so that I could talk to them or anything, but they were there. I think I was particularly inept at talking to girls or thinking, OK, do you ask them out? Do you not? When I went off to Harvard, I was a little more sociable, but I was still below average on talking to girls. <laughs> oh. But that, okay, uh. that is the thing. It's like, because I, I did a little kind of fucking computer programming when I was in high school and like mm -hmm. making like business software, like just make a weird quasi pornographic video game. Like, that's what you want to do. What is happening yeah. here? Mm -hmm. It's... <sighs> It's so bizarre because like, I, I mean, honestly, this is, this is like some fucking Mark Zuckerberg shit, right? It's like starting Facebook yes, so that yes, you could yes. like s spy on girls and shit. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, it really is. It's the same basic idea. Bills is from an earlier age. He would have done the same thing Zuckerberg did. Um, that said, it's also like he's too much of a nerd to take advantage of it. He's just sitting in class with these girls. Um, yeah, because he, he it is it is a very it, like, yeah. you know, child of the 60s, yeah. child of the 50s, I guess, kind of was just like, once I'm there, I made it. I made like, it. Well, I'm in the room with the girls. Yeah, <laughs> oh, Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Bill. Um, and it's, you know, the 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 thing that's funny about it is, I mean, there's a number of things that are funny about it. <laughs> um, but like. It's uh it's like revenge of the nerd shit, you know? Yeah. Like it, it, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. That, it's that kind of thing, which like, if you haven't watched revenge of the nerds, it's a movie that it's like this silly movie about a bunch of nerds, you know, uh, being the cool kids, um, and getting one over on the jocks at a college that nobody thought anything was problematic about until I think about <laughs> 10 years ago, everyone realized at the same time that the main character literally rapes a girl. Um, yeah. and it's played it, off as a gag. <laughs> like, it's it's pretty it's bad like pretty yeah. pretty grim ass yeah, shit it's yeah. truly like, just like what how did, it, but it's so many movies from the 80s yeah. are like that also yeah and like, bill huh? bill gates is like that like now we'll yeah. talk about this in the second episode there's yeah. all these stories coming out about how creepy he is and how uh, yeah. uh, like inappropriate a lot of his relationships were and people just like didn't talk about it because it was just like right. well he's like the who wouldn't want to fuck the the billionaire nerd like that's the thing right, the right, nerds right. grow up and make money and then all the women want them that's like there's like a million movies with that as the plot right <laughs> now um, interestingly enough, fucking the Simpsons, uh, uh, early on, uh, put a lot of time into like with a character clearly themed after Bill Gates, um, like, uh, subverting that trope, which is, is good. Now, as that last quote made clear, Bill was accepted into Harvard after, after college, <laughs> uh, creep or not, his grades and impressive computing resume made him a shoe in. 
He started college in 1973, and he lived in a dorm house that was filled with all of the math and science nerds, because even Harvard had standards. They wanted to keep those kids away from the dorms where kids were getting laid, basically. Right. Now, during his sophomore year, Bill Gates met Steve Ballmer, the future CEO of Microsoft, and presently most famous for allegedly throwing chairs at employees during meetings. Yeah. Uh, I can confirm from my time as a tech journalist that he smells like onions. Um, I don't know what he smelled like in college, but I can confirm that in like 2010, he smells like onions. Um, Now, Balmer and Gates were opposites in a number of ways. Steve was extremely involved in everything. Bill was aggressively uninvolved in anything but his own little world of computers. That Washington Post article I quoted from includes a few interesting tidbits, like that both got perfect scores on their SATs and were obsessed with Napoleon. There's probably something (laughs) meaningful in the fact that Bill Gates loves Napoleon and Mark Zuckerberg loves Augustus Caesar. Um, <laughs> you know, not a kawinky dink, but all right. It, I, I'm just yeah. saying it should be illegal to have classics education. We should, we yeah. Should, well, especially we, for for yeah. that type of white guy. You're like, mm-hmm. come on, yeah. No, the only thing you should learn about is genocide. We're throwing all of the statues into the sea. <laughs> Don't tell this kid about Hadrian. <laughs> now, the reports we have from Gates in college make it clear that he was. Uh, he was he was gross. Uh, he didn't use sheets. Instead, he slept directly on his dorm mattress because making his bed was too hard. Um, Balmer did the same. Again, all boys in college are gross. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It's just funny to me. Now, Gates's main extracurricular during college was poker, which he was terrible at. He lost so much money that he eventually gave Steve Balmer his checkbook for safekeeping because otherwise he was going to lose all of his money getting his ass kicked at poker. Now, while all this was happening, personal computing was in its infancy. 1974 marked the release of what a lot of people will call the first personal computer, the Altair 8080. Um, Now, Paul Allen, who at this point had graduated and gotten a job at the Honeywell Corp, immediately rushed to Bill's dorm with an ad for the the Altair 8080. Um, He and Gates quickly wrote a letter to the computer's manufacturer, MITS, asking if they could write software for it in BASIC. MITS was like, yeah, sure, you guys can like, we'll pay you to write software if you come up with software that's good, but you better hurry because a shitload of people have actually been making the same offer to us. Personal computing is kind of like starting to blow up in this period of time. So both men basically dropped everything else in their lives to move to Albuquerque, where MITS was headquartered and write software for the first personal computer. Uh, This meant Paul Allen quit his job at Honeywell and Gates dropped out of Harvard in his junior year in 1975 to move to Albuquerque and start a company. You might have expected this to have gone over poorly with his parents, but again, Bill seems to have kind of hit the mom and dad lottery in a lot of ways. When questioned about it decades later, his father said, being a college dropout wasn't precisely what my wife and I had envisioned for any of our children, but Bill seemed to know what he was doing. Um, Very supportive family this kid has. And he did know what he was doing. Uh, You have to give the man credit for that. Allen and Gates formed a consulting company to sell software to Altair. They called it Micro-Soft. Um, mm. Ew, why can you tell where this is going yeah, everything <laughs> needed a dash back in the back in the 70s is, uh, is, is, is the Napster guy going to come and say get rid of the get rid of the dash or is that is that not what's going to happen <laughs> no the Napster guy um, was was had not been born at this point yeah. thank god that's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> oh. What's his name? Sean oh, Sean Parker. That fucker. Sean Parker. That piece too. of shit. Fuck he you, sucks, Sean Parker. Sucks too. <laughs> yeah. Let's make legally actionable claims about Sean Parker next. 
<laughs> so uh, Bill and uh, or Bill and Paul uh, hired friends of theirs to help them produce software, including a kid named Monty Davidoff, who they had write a piece of software that would allow computers to perform greater ranges of calculations. The three all lived together in a two bedroom apartment. Davidoff slept on the living room floor. In 2000, he told the Washington Post that although they were friends, Gates could be something of a dick. Quote, there was definitely a supervisory dynamic. Bill could get very loud. If he felt you weren't getting something, he would say the same thing, louder. He liked strong interchanges. I preferred not to work in that way. Now, this is the period of time a lot of Microsoft stories come from, you know, the scra scrappy upstarts on a shoestring bu budget building a globe-spanning megacorporation from their living room <laughs> or their garage or whatever. Right, right. Um, the reality is that Gates was backed from the beginning by family money. There was never any, like, there, were, there was a time when the company wasn't making much money, but there was never a period of time when Gates was had any financial worries. Right, da right. Yeah, Davidoff worked for them for two summers, uh, and then they offered him a permanent job, but he had to say no, because he couldn't afford to drop out of Harvard. He told the Post that Bill Gates had only been able to drop out of Harvard to start his company because his family was rich. Quote, the way Bill and I thought about money was very different. He would tell all of his friends, just call me collect. He knew there was he, he knew he wasn't going to have to support himself coming out of college. And the fact that Bill never, ever in his whole life worried about money in a meaningful way does not mean he wasn't obsessed with it. In fact, his lust for profitability, depending on who you ask, had a somewhat disastrous impact on the growing computing community. In the early days, computing was, in fact, a community. These were the days when any given computer was a DIY project. Most personal computers, like you would have to solder parts of it together to like get it working or to add things like you're like using fucking tools and shit to like anyone who has a computer is doing this shit. Um, you're coding programs on like these weird paper things like yeah, I, I like, couldn't. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Like it's 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 uh, so it's it's very much DIY. It's, it's actually not all that different from like the 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 3D printed gun community is today. Like it's a bunch right, of people, right. like everything is shared. All of these programs are shared. You don't pay money for them. Usually you just like, oh, or if someone buys it, they then just copy it and send it for free to their friends. Like that's the way this stuff really works. Um, and computer hobbyists had a powerful sense of solidarity. In the early days of Microsoft, Gates and Allen were selling software to those ho hobbyists. Only not everyone who used Microsoft software actually paid for it. A lot of these people were poor. You know, buying a computer was all they could afford to do, so they weren't buying the software. And there was a brisk open trade in free software, from each according to their resources to everyone according to their needs. Microsoft programs were very popular with this set. One expert later wrote, Hobbyists loved it. They loved it so much they were willing to send tapes, paper tapes, around to each other for free. Now, this was critical in Microsoft's success because it spread adoption of their products, but it enraged Bill Gates that people were getting <laughs> software for free. In 1976, he penned an infamous open letter to computer hobbyists. He accused them of all stealing all of stealing his software and said that resellers who sold computers with his programs already on them were basically robbing them. The letter included the line, hardware must be paid for, but software is something to share. Who cares if the people who worked on it get paid? He's being very snotty about this. Now, Gates complained that the time he and Alan spent to create their products was worth $40,000, but that the royalties they received based on what they'd actually sold meant they were just making about $2 an hour. This was, many will argue, a short-sighted way of looking at things. The share and share-alike mindset of early software was a major driver of innovation. It allowed different ideas about software to be merged and tested and provided early programmers with a greater base of knowledge to work from. Many of the brilliant minds behind the computer revolution, guys like Steve Wozniak, 
benefited hugely from this state of affairs. Like, and, and the was is someone who will say like, yeah, that's why we have the computing systems that we have today is because in my day, we were just able to like share everything. And was is like, like a punk side of this thing. Like he's a phone freaker. Mm-hmm. He's like doing back in the day. You could like make certain signals over the phone that would get you free phone access and shit. Like he was all into that. Like, fucking Steve Wozniak's actually pretty fucking rad when he got super rich off of Apple he blew all of his money holding a bunch of giant concerts and stuff like he's <laughs> fucking cool dude actually um but Bill did not so Bill you know a, a lot of and again Wozniak is one of those guys that you really can't argue it was in, in instrumental in the existence of personal computers as we know them today you can argue that about Bill Gates and he did not agree with guys like Steve Wozniak about intellectual property He felt that intellectual property rights trumped human progress any day of the week. It didn't matter that sharing software was good for computing because it was bad for Microsoft. And so from that moment on, Gates dedicated himself to making sure IP was kept sacrosanct. Today, intellectual property rights and paid software are such pillars of the industry that it can be hard to believe this wasn't necessarily always going to be the case. One thing that made Apple Computer interesting in 1976 was the fact that their operating system, Apple Basic, was free. And they openly claimed, quote, our philosophy is to provide software for our machines at free or minimal cost. Now, there was significant fallout within the computing community over this open letter. One hobbyist, Hal Singer, who published an influential newsletter, complained that since Bill Gates had developed BASIC on a Harvard University computer funded by the U.S. government and the start of the Microsoft, (laughs) like the first programs they make, they make in Harvard before they drop out. The Harvard computer they make it on was paid for by DARPA like the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. Um, And so Hal Singer will say like, well, he should never have been able to sell uh, Windows. Yeah, in the first place. Yeah, Yeah. it was was developed using taxpayer funds, which is true. This is a very defensible line of argument. Now, I mean, it does. It sounds yeah. like Bill Gates is the thing, the philosophy, yeah. a philosophy of his that has resonated down is tech guys using public, you know, mm-hmm. either public research, public funded intellectual property, public whatever, thinking they own it and then not letting and then getting mad when, you know, like like taking taking from the common good and mm-hmm. pretending they invented it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's fucking it's fucking rad. Um, but you know what else is rad, Andrew? Hit me. The products and services that support oh, this podcast. Snap. Yeah, yeah, that's Gets right. Every time. Art. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, 
uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and we're talking about non-consensual relationships with stuffed animals. <laughs> Andrew, have you, you know ever... I'm going to edit that out, right? ...been in a non-consensual relationship with a stuffed animal? Sophie, these are the conversations people tune in for. I will not have Anderson slander on this podcast. I mean, probably you are the one who slandered them. Yeah, Yeah. because stuffed animals can't really consent, can they? Yeah, yeah. Mostly, it's all not consensual. It's all non consensual. It's really yeah something we should analyze more. (laughs) Pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. (laughs) But you know what is consensual? I've cut. I cut that. I cut that entire conversation out of (laughs) the podcast. So it doesn't matter. This is all. This is all staying in. This is all gold. Uh, according to my edit gold. notes, they, it, it is not. Well, according to my edit notes, Chris, you don't have to do that. You can, you can, we can keep this in. You can fight the system. You can't stop the signal, Sophie. And the signal is talking about whether or not stuffed animals can consent. And the signal, I think, largely is coming out on no on that one. Yeah, but it's not happening. Hit us up. 
And we're mm-hmm. back. Continue, Robin. Oh, we've been back. So <laughs> other people who knew Gates and Allen at the time reposted his estimate that he and his colleagues had put $40,000 into designing their software, right? That's a big part of his argument on this open letter is this is how much money it's cost us to make this. We have to be able to make it back. We can't afford to do this. One member of the Homebrew Computer Club, Lee Felsenstein, uh, who Lee Felsenstein designed the first mass-produced personal computer, later said, quote, well, we all knew that the evaluation of computer time was the ultimate in funny money. You never pay that much for the computer time. And I think that research will show that they were using someone else's computer time. Someone else was paying for that. It could have been Honeywell where Paul Allen was working. So we all knew this to be a spurious argument. So back in this day, you had to like pay in a lot of cases for to- access to a right. computer, right? And one of the things Bill gets in trouble with when he's a kid, like he and his friends get kicked out of one of the places because they're hacking the system to get free computer time um right they're using free computer time at Stanford. they're almost certainly using paul allen's company's free like they're doing a lot of things they would call stealing right but yeah 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 but it's also like uh, the the pointing out the hypocrisy with those yeah. folks never works yeah what? no not ever uh, they i mean yeah yeah and you know felsenstein Again, it's it talks about like kind of the the injustices of the world. Felsenstein is one of the most influential computing pioneers you never heard of. And the reason that Gates is famous and Felsenstein isn't has nothing to do with the fact that Gates did more to revolutionize the world. It's not that he was like that much more influential than Felsenstein. It's because Felsenstein was obsessed with pushing the boundaries of computing, while Gates was obsessed with pushing the boundaries of how much money computing could make. Felsenstein later wrote that the open letter, quote, delineated a rift between the actual industry where there's trying to make money and there's where those those hobbyists where we're trying to make things happen. So there's this rift that opens that Bill starts between making money and making computers better. Bill is not on the making computers better side. Right, right, right. As anyone who's (sighs) used Microsoft Vista could tell you. (laughs) Oh God! I mean, it's just it's it's the the through line of like he was a weird businessman since he was a child is the I to me yeah I don't know yeah, why Sue and so his disturbing. friends at age fifteen yeah. yeah it's like weird again could could have given this kid could have like gone back in time and given nine year old Bill Gates a blunt and like a yeah. King Crimson album and been like just just get into weird nerd just shit kids anything. stay away from computers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, start worshiping the devil. Something. Worship the devil, listen to prog rock, take a bunch of acid, it'll be fine. God. Or you'll become yeah. Steve Jobs, actually. So, yeah, yeah. you know. It's kind <laughs> of the same. Kind of the same same journey. Yeah. Um, so, Lee, I'm going to read another quote from Lee Felsenstein here, where he's just kind of explaining why Microsoft gets big and how, what that has to do with this, this homebrew computer culture that he hates. Quote, The industry needs the hobbyists, and this was illustrated by what happened eventually. When National Semiconductor, which made their own microprocessor chips in 77 or 78, decided they needed a basic, an operating system, they asked, what's the most popular basic? And the answer was Microsoft Basic, because everybody had copied it and everybody was using it. So we made Microsoft the standard basic. National Semiconductor went to Microsoft and bought a license. They were in business that way. This was the marketing function, and the hobbyists did the marketing with a complete antipathy of the company in question. There were other basics, and you know, some of them might even have been better. Gates's later success was in a certain measure because of what we did, that he said we shouldn't do. We were thieves to do it at all. Like, that's important. Is yeah. 
Bill is arguing that like, well, we can't be expected to do this for free. Otherwise, you won't have innovation. And it's like, well, no, the fact that people were sharing your program for free yeah. is why you became a billionaire. Because when companies started realizing we need to pay for operating systems, what's the most popular one? Oh, this one, because everyone's been sharing it for free. Like, yeah, it's the argument about piracy, right? It's the same thing as like, well, if people are able to share movies and music and stuff for free, it doesn't hurt the industry. It will actually bring them more fans who will spend money on those things in other ways which I think was borne out by what happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, there's also the sort of inevitability of it, right? Which is like, like it or not. I mean, it also, it is just a better model for, mm-hmm. I guess, some stuff. I don't know. I'm sitting here. I th- for a lot of things, for every, for mo- a lot of things that are covered by intellectual property. Like, yeah, you know, I, uh, my boss, part of why I'm putting out my book for free um, like there will be a, a print version and stuff. I've got a publisher, but it's going to be available for free online. Is it something my my boss, Jason Pargin, did back in the early 2000s? He just published his book online for free. It became hugely popular. And when you have something for free that, you know, uh, X number of people have consumed anyway, there will be a way to monetize it. Jason got made a lot of money off of that book eventually. Like it's it, it mm-hmm. works out. It, it's the same thing with Bill Gates. Bill Gates made a shitload of money off of people using his shit for free. That's kind of how intellectual property actually works most of the time. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> Bill Gates is a dick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So one of the people who spends the most time slamming Bill Gates and is the best at it because he's right about literally everything is Cory Doctorow. Um, mm-hmm. I fucking love Corey. He's uh, he's he's rad. Uh, and I found a really good interview with him on Jacobin, uh, where he goes into more detail on how Gates went from quote another company making Altair software into a giant of the industry. And he makes a similar argument to Felsenstein, but he highlights Microsoft's deal with IBM as more crucial. Quote. Gates gets his fortune because IBM had been subject to years of antitrust hell. Every year for 12 years, IBM outspent the entire Department of Justice antitrust division fighting an antitrust claim. Finally, under Reagan, they were let off the hook. So IBM had spent years tied to the bumper of the DOJ. And one of the things they knew that the DOJ really hated was monopolizing software by tying it to hardware. So they made the PC and they made it out of commodity parts so that it could be cloned. They sat back as Phoenix Computing reverse engineered their ROM and started selling it to Dell and Gateway and Compaq so that there were compatible machines. And they said, we're not going to make the operating system. And they went to Bill Gates and Paul Allen and asked them to make a a DOS that they could use their machines so the DOJ would leave them alone. So that's where Gates' fortune comes from. He was in the right place at the right time. And his mindset, this idea of cutthroat competition, of no sharing, of no collegiality, allowed him to leverage the weakness of IBM's own IP, its ability to control its critics and competitors and customers, and then impose his own. And so and in another bit of irony, Gates, who spends a chunk of his life fighting one of the biggest antitrust cases in history, maybe the biggest, also is only able to get started because the DOJ goes after IBM for monopoly shit. Like, because IBM has stopped from making Monopoly, that's why they don't go in-house to make their operating system, because they're worried about antitrust shit, which is why Bill Gates gets rich. Like, all of these things he hates his whole life are the whole reason he has money. Like, it's... <laughs> yeah. Right. It, but yeah. It's, it's... Yeah. I, the hypocrisy of it is, like, what can you do? I don't know. I don't they're know. always going to think they invented it. Yeah, they're always going to think it was all them. Yeah. Again, this is why we need uh, we need like to to dismantle all of our present federal law enforcement agencies and devote their resources to like hiring a bunch of 
middle-aged and like early 50s, 60s women and giving them tire irons and the ability to track people down and hit them in the face with tire irons when they start doing shit that's clearly going to end in a bad place. Like yeah. you see a 15 year old suing his partners in the computer club and it's like it's time for the ladies to, to hit him with some irons, you know? Yeah. Like smack him yeah. around a little bit. Yeah. Maybe have, make, oh, make another man. one of them have a mountain climbing accident. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, just hypothetically. Just hypothetically. Just the old ladies with tire irons. Uh, no nonsense division. They could have gone after the WeWork guy, you know, when he starts talking about being the world's first trillionaire. <laughs> hit him with a fucking iron right in the face. Like, fucking crack that boy's jaw. Just, just give it a... Give it a, give it a, take, a take a thought. Mm-hmm. It Maybe couldn't be idea. worse than the current system. Yeah, Fair. exactly. Yeah. Now, Microsoft. Uh, OK, so by 1980, Microsoft was enough of a real company that Bill was able to hire his buddy Steve Ballmer to do the non-techie business managing stuff that was necessary in a growing company. Ballmer was employee number 24. No. Now, what? You won't get the reference, but ill. Continue. Oh, okay. It's, it's probably a basketball thing. Yep. Sophie loves the Lakers, who are the same as no, I don't know whatever other on. team she was come mentioning on. earlier. Continue. I don't know any of these things, Sophie. So, but but Steve Ballmer does because he owns a golf team or some shit, whatever kind of sport. <laughs> they don't anyway. win, so might as well go with that. So this is not a business nerd podcast where we talk about how companies grow and shit. You can find so much written about like <laughs> the intricacies of early Microsoft corporate culture and whatnot. Um, and it's all boring as hell. Apple is a lot more fun because St- Steve Jobs is a, is a freaking lunatic. Right, right, right. <laughs> Just like a he's, he's literally like a filthy vagrant who like forces everybody to smell his rancid ass as he like refuses to shower for weeks and lives in the office. <laughs> it's such a uh, he's a hoot. <laughs> I again, I got my start in journalism in like reporting on the tech industry, and I was legitimately bummed when he died because he was just so fucking entertaining. Um, <laughs> but also a monster, like they all are, except for the Waz. Um, <laughs> someone's gonna tell me about you know, Steve Wozniak designed Israeli missile to technology or some <laughs> shit, make me really sad, but I don't know anything about anything bad he's done yet. Um, so There were twists and turns, obviously, in the story of Microsoft's growth, but the gist of it is it expanded steadily over the 80s. In 1986, it had its IPO, which is the IPO is when it goes public on the stock market. That's when all of the people who found a company get rich as shit. Um, And Gates gets, I mean, he's always been rich, but he gets fuck, he gets fuck everyone money at this point. From 1987 on, he was never off the list of wealthiest Americans. Now, Whoa. Gates and Ballmer, oh yeah, right? God. Like That's how long he's been fucking rich. I hate right. that stat. Yeah. Wow. Now, Gates and Ballmer yeah. fought constantly. Uh, they were as much rivals as they were friends. Um, and again, Steve Ballmer has is allegedly throws chairs at employees during meetings when they argue with him. So, like, <laughs> um, the two would get into screaming arguments over just about anything. One friendly chess match between the two ended in Bill Gates throwing a tantrum and tossing the board in pieces off the table. Um, but none of this fighting seems to have harmed the expansion of the company. In the 1980s, Balmer headed the team that developed Windows. By the 1990s, Apple and Microsoft were the biggest names in the computing game. The history of that rivalry is something we could get into, but honestly, both are har- helmed by narcissistic assholes. What do you care? Uh, right. The story of Gates's crapitude has less to do with like shady shit that he did fighting another giant company 
uh, and more to do with how he constantly assaulted anyone trying to innovate in a way that might reduce Microsoft profits. Cory Doctorow describes this as a process of tying. Quote, he ties the ability to get Windows or DOS on your machine to an agreement not to pre-install rival products. He can sabotage the operating system, which he does for, through vertical integration. He sells you an operating system and a suit of applications that run on it, and then if you make a competing application, he can tweak the operating system. Excel, for example, had a long-running competitor that was by all accounts better, called Lotus 1, 2, and 3. The oh, model yeah. at Microsoft was, DOS isn't done until Lotus won't run. And every new release would just fall apart. So they literally sabotage other products so that they won't work on Microsoft <laughs> machines. Oh. Um, Bill uh, and Microsoft also had the ability to strategically snuff out rivals by bu bundling free versions of rival products into the operating system. So in Toronto, there was a great software success story called Delrina that made the world's most successful fax software. One day they started including free fax software with Windows and no one ever bought a Delrina license again. That was the end of it. But Gates was able to do what everyone who's dreamt of a command economy wanted to do, subordinate the individual priorities of other market actors to his needs to achieve a strategic goal, in this case, for his own enrichment. So that's fucking cool. <laughs> now, all of this went very smoothly for Gates and for Microsoft until the latter half of the 1990s. Now, throughout the 90s, the Justice Department is kind of on an annual basis sending out their equivalent of like warning shots saying like we're investigating potential antitrust at Microsoft, but nothing really solid materializes until Bill Gates decides to take aim at a plucky little web browser called Netscape Navigator. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Now, if you're not as old as us, especially if you came of age after the dominance of social media, browser preference probably doesn't mean a lot to you. Like, People can argue about Firefox or Chrome or Safari or I don't know, fucking Opera. But unless you're using Microsoft Edge like some sort of goddamn heathen, all browsers are more or less fine from a usability standpoint, right? People, yeah. I'm, I'm sure people are going to be no, Firefox, I, 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 like, fuck you. I don't care. Yeah. They're all basically like, fuck it. Like, in, whatever. Indistinguishable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But back in the day, Netscape's, Netscape was the only PC browser that wasn't an unholy nightmare to use. Like, everything was trash. And then there was Netscape Navigator, this oasis of competent design in a sea of mostly Microsoft Explorer flavored shit. Like, fucking mm. Netscape ruled. Consumers <laughs> loved it. And that drove <laughs> Gates crazy. In 1995, he had some of his people meet the developers of the browser and offer to invest in the company. Microsoft reps were extremely complimentary at this meeting. The friendly attitude did not last, though, from a write-up in a blog dedicated to the book 1995, the year the future began. Quote, The pretense of cordiality dissipated on June 21st, 1995, at a four-hour meeting at Netscape headquarters in Mountain View, California, at which representatives of Microsoft delivered what Netscape considered a heavy-handed threat, divide the market for web browsers or face the prospect of annihilation. According to detailed notes of the meeting made by Mark Anderson, Netscape's co-founder, Microsoft's representatives proposed restricting the Netscape Navigator browser to older versions of Microsoft's Windows operating systems. That would mean excluding Navigator from Windows 95, the upgraded operating system that Microsoft was planning to release. Now at the time, no one was 100% sure if Microsoft was legally allowed to do this. There are laws against being a monopoly, and when you're saying... Not only do we make operating systems, but we unilaterally will decide which browsers work for them. You're edging across that line. But again, it was new enough that like there was debate yeah. as to whether or not this was this was verboten. Uh, now, Anderson at the time was a 24 year old callow youth like Bill had been back in Albuquerque. And he described Microsoft reps as acting like Don Corleone from The Godfather. 
I have never been in a meeting with in my 35 year business career in which a competitor had so blatantly implied that we we would either stop competing with it or the competitor would kill us. In all my years in business, I have never heard nor experienced such an explicit proposal to divide markets. Netscape said no, and Microsoft did what they promised. By 1999, they had successfully killed Netscape, which was duly bought and destroyed by AOL. R.I.P. Like pour one out to my homie. Now, uh, did you ever use Netscape, Andrew? Oh, yeah, yeah. I am definitely of that age. Mm -hmm. I actually, I I will say also I'm of the, like, pay attention to shit. I did not exactly realize that it was, had been killed. Yeah, that's why it it stopped being a thing. Yeah. I guess I just assumed that's what, Firefox, because it was all Mozilla. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the same people I think later wound up being a big part of of Firefox. Right, right. Um, Okay. But yeah, Netscape gets murdered. Um, obviously yeah, yeah. Uh, good browsers eventually become, uh, I mean, you can, we, people will argue about that to this day and like, fuck you. I don't care. Um, Netscape and, <laughs> and Chrome or, or, or uh, Firefox and Chrome are the same. Uh, go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. Um, no, no. now Microsoft Ed's edge is trash, but whatever. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> exactly. But that's it's, the thing. They, no, they, it's what they replaced Explorer with. Yeah. That's the hilarious part. It's like, this was like a, like, you know, a, a war for the keys of who would control the internet, and now it's yeah. like, what's the difference? There's a yeah. new one. Huh. Well, and it's like you guys were never, never got good at making browsers. Like it clearly wasn't the thing you were interested in. It was just because someone. Somewhat, else it wasn't. Even, it wasn't even because it was going to hurt your ability to make money because they're using the thing on your computers that they're paying right. for. It was that someone else was making money. Like it didn't even hurt you. You just hate the idea that other people will profit. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, that meeting with Microsoft and Netscape where Microsoft threatened Netscape wound up playing a key role in a massive 1998 antitrust lawsuit. The federal government brought against Microsoft 20 state governments joined the lawsuit, which alleged that the company was engaged in a systemic pattern of anti-competitive tactics. Its attempt to wipe out all competition in the browser market was just one example of this. The government case against Microsoft was heavily boosted by a memorandum written in 1995 by Gates himself titled The Internet Tidal Wave. It described Netscape as a threat that had to be beaten. The government alleged, using this, that Microsoft set out to win at any cost. The federal judge who heard the case, Thomas Pinfield Jackson, decided for the government, finding that Microsoft had attempted to monopolize the web browser market. He ordered the company split in two. Now, you're probably aware that this did not happen. Um, Microsoft appealed. uh, They obviously they have all of the money in the world. They appeal. The judge's decision gets overturned. They and the the thing they eventually got was just like a slap on the wrist. I'm not going to labor long on why this happened. Microsoft had all the money, all the lawyers and owned a decent number of the politicians. Of course, they won in the long term. Our system is designed for them to win. (laughs) What's important and what was valuable about the antitrust suit is that it shattered Bill Gates for a while. It was hugely stressful. It made for months of bad PR. It led him to have several in-office nervous breakdowns. And worst of all, it involved a public deposition that exposed him to the world as exactly the kind of arrogant and angry little man those who'd worked closely with him had known since the Albuquerque days. So let's end this episode by talking about that deposition. Microsoft's legal strategy in the first case was to depict the prosecutors as out of touch old fogies who didn't understand technology and to claim like Microsoft is just acting in the way any reasonable tech company would do. Gates's lawyers and PR flax wanted him to make hay out of his reputation as a boy genius who dropped out of Harvard to become the world's richest man. 
Here's how Ars Technica <laughs> described what came next. By day two, it became clear that the strategy was failing spectacularly. As New Yorker writer Kent Auletta once noted, Gates had never in his life groveled for a job or suffered many of the indignities most of us experience on a regular basis. He regularly berated reporters for asking what he'd say were stupid questions. Publicly lauded as the wise sage, consummate businessman, and industry visionary, Gates was accustomed to being treated with obsequious deference from all but a small number of peers. As such, he had little or no experience tolerating, let alone encountering, dissent, criticism, or challenges to his authority. The lack of experience played right into the government's hand. Instead of portraying a leader in control of his domain and confident in his case and his company's legal and ethical righteousness, the courtroom videos showed a side of Gates that had never been on public display before. He was petulant, petty, flustered, and dour. He was ineffectual. He was, in a word, beaten. During three days of intense questioning, Gates often feigned ignorance of his own company's policies and actions. He parsed out everyday words or phrases such as concern, support, and piss on. Gates seemed to use the strategy to evade tough questions about whether his company abused its entrenched Windows franchise to kill off emerging competitors, such as Navigator and Java. To the surprise of him and his many attorneys and image handlers, Gates came off as argumentative, petty, and someone badly losing ground to a more formidable rival. One example of this exchange came uh, came in this exchange with David Boys, the private attorney hired by the Justice Department. Boys, what non-Microsoft browsers were you concerned about in January of 1996? Gates, I don't know what you mean, concerned. Boys, what is it about the word concerned that you don't understand? Gates, I'm not sure what you mean by it. Boys, is Gates, is there a document where I use that term? Boys, is the term concerned a term you're familiar with in the English language? Gates, yes. Does it have a meaning you're familiar with? Gates, yes. <laughs> you fucking piece of shit. He really, that's like the Ben Shapiro school mm. of debate. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, just like, don't address the issue. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. What is it what? with Harvard dweebs? Yeah. Again, it's like that Ars Technica writer points out. Like he's he's you he, he's never had to grovel yeah. for a job. He's never had to deal with indignities. At yeah. one point, Thomas Penfield Jackson, the judge hearing the case, started laughing. Uh, Microsoft lawyers argued during a closed door session that the deposition was turning into a sideshow and government lawyers should be barred from showing any more segments during the trial. The judge denied this motion, saying, if anything, I think your problem is with your witness, not the way in which his testimony is being presented. <laughs> Basically, like there, you can't show this deposition because it makes us look bad. And the judge right, was right, like, right. that's exactly why we should show it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, holy shit. Unfortunately for all mankind, uh, the Microsoft <laughs> antitrust case was actually kind of, even though the government kind of lost, was uh, basically the best case scenario for such a trial in our system. Good didn't win and evil didn't lose, but evil had a horrible time and wound up traumatized enough that it quit its job. So that's like the best case scenario. You're never going to break up the big company because they have all right. the money to fight you. But you can make the CEO like not want to do his job anymore. Yeah. Um, sort of sort of the, the Viet Cong yeah. version of yeah. a lawsuit. <laughs> yes. Cl- famous, famous Viet Cong analogs, the U.S. Department of Justice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh, always a bigger fish. That's there's the always lesson. A there's always fish. a bigger fish. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Andrew, that's the end of part one for the day. Awesome. You what made, a- what a story <laughs> what a, what a tale you got you got any pluggables to plug no yeah just uh you know yo is this racist uh we are independent now i, th- I don't remember if we said that at the top but uh 
yeah, go, go to suboptimalpods.com and you'll see how to subscribe to, you know, premium shows and stuff and uh, whatever. See, that's exciting because in part two, we are going to have to ask, hey, hey, yo, is that racist? <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of times. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, hot. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks. scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.